With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today here on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the ripple effects of California's overtime rules for ag workers. And the Department of Water Resources approves 10 more groundwater sustainability plans. But our top story today, during the opening session of the 2024 American Farm Bureau Annual Convention this week, AFBF President Zippy Duvall pushed the urgency of getting a farm bill done. Now, thankfully, we've achieved a farm bill extension, but we need to get even louder. Now, I know that we need to get through the budget process, but we also need to tell Congress and urge them to pass a new modernized farm bill. And that's just what we're going to be asking you to do this week. He also highlighted what Farm Bureau has already done to showcase the importance of the bill. Now, when it comes to many big issues that we face on our farm, you better believe that Farm Bureau is going to be at the table. In fact, we're going to be setting that table for the discussion. We're going to be pulling up all the chairs that we can find. We're going to be getting everyone seated, and we're going to solve the challenge that we're facing. Last year, I talked to you about the power of farm and nutrition programs coming together to advocate for the Farm Bill. Today, we're united behind the Farm Bill for America's Families campaign. See, we brought together a diverse group of agriculture, conservation, and nutrition just to explain why the Farm Bill matters to every American. Our messages have resonated with the public, and through this campaign, we've reached millions of people across the country. But that's just a slice of what we're doing to advocate for the Farm Bill. See, we started working uh, with the Four Corners way before the Farm Bill expires, the Four Corners of the Agriculture Committee. We've got to jump on the others, and in fact, 2,300 of our grassroots members and leaders came to Washington, D.C. in 2023 to advocate for the Farm Bill. Many others have amplified our message on social media and through testimonials, just like these. Well, I think second to our national security is food security and you know the, the knowledge that we have a safe, abundant food supply in our grocery stores at all time. I think that benefits all of us. Supporting the Farm Bill, it's extremely important and we need to make sure people are supporting and asking for these projects and programs so that there is something that will keep our farms providing fresh, clean, clear food, fuel and fiber. So the Farm Bill only comes up once every five years. It's very critical that every five years we step up, voice our concern, get our needs out there, get them addressed so that we're not sort of washed out of the system and, and other voices are heard when our voices aren't heard. And we did a very good job of that. We really stood up. As Farm Bureau members, it's important for us to come together and advocate for the Farm Bill because while we may all produce different products across the country, combined together we are one strong voice for agriculture and we can make a difference. That is some great work by our members. Yes, let's give them a round of applause. AFBF is providing tools at the convention to members to reach out to their elected officials and stress the need of a farm bill. We want you to stop by the AFBF booth at the trade show and pick up a card. It looks just like this. And all you have to do is simply scan the code on there to the call to action. Now, this is just our first step in the 2024 grassroots advocacy work that we're going to be doing on the farm, wheel, the farm bill. Now, I want to be clear. We're asking you to help us. 
we have to send a resounding message to Congress to deliver a new farm bill for our farms and our country. Do not leave this convention until you give us that help. Thank you. The convention continues today here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we will bring you more news from the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halvorsen, and we will be back in just a moment with more of the day's agriculture news. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, what's the definition of an egg? Well, some senators are trying to define that in law. David Geiger has this report. Some plant-based companies have started to call their food eggs. While senators want to make sure any food products labeled as eggs come from a bird, Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst and Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman introduced the Consistent Egg Labels Act, which aims to do that with nationwide enforcement. To kind of push back against these non-egg, uh, vegan or plant-based products that are calling themselves eggs. As Iowa is the top egg-producing state in the nation, Ernst claims the Food and Drug Administration failed to take action against what she calls deceptive labeling claims. What we want to do is create clear guidelines for the FDA to ensure that any product labeled as an egg is actually coming from poultry. The North Central Poultry Association praises the bill saying alternatives do not match in nutrition, functionality, and taste. Ernst says transparency is needed. So we were trying to look it up and see what actually goes into these non-egg egg alternatives and what I think it was like mung beans and all kinds of other stuff. That certainly is not an egg. So John Fetterman and I are stepping up and we're saying, you know what, if an egg's an egg, let's call it an egg. And if you're not an egg, you're not going to be called an egg. In Des Moines, Iowa, I'm David Geiger. Final harvest estimates have been established for Canada's grain corn crop, and the numbers show that 2023 produced a bumper corn crop. Dennis Guy reports. Final harvest estimates have been established for Canada's grain corn crop, and the numbers show that 2023 produced a bumper corn crop. Central Canada is home to the country's Corn Belt, running from southern Manitoba through southern Ontario and into southwestern Quebec. But Ontario is the heart of Canada's Corn Belt, producing more than 70% of the country's grain corn. The 2023 corn crop in Ontario finished up with a provincial yield just over 171 bushels per acre on a harvested acreage above the five-year average and a crop ahead of the five-year average. Jerry Clausen, a commodity markets analyst based in Winnipeg, works closely with the Canadian cattle industry. Beef feedlots in central Canada depend on grain corn for a large portion of their finishing feed ration. Jerry Clausen says that while both beef prices and corn prices are low right now, eastern Canadian cattle feeders will have lots of good quality corn to feed this winter. The bulk of the acreage is in Ontario. We have a little bit in Manitoba and in Quebec, but out of about 14 million tons, 10 of it's in Ontario. The Ontario corn crop had good conditions throughout the growing season. The crop was pretty good quality, yields overall above the five-year average. That gave us a crop size of about 9.6 million tons. The so five-year average is around 9 million tons. 
Aside from its own domestic corn usage, Canada is a net exporter of corn, primarily into northern European livestock markets. Claussen says the Brazilian corn crop is expected to be quite a bit smaller in its next harvest cycle. If this is the case, corn prices should begin to recover later this winter and into the spring and early summer months. The higher prices will be based on global demand for American corn, which is also positive for exported Ontario corn. We're going to see a stronger demand from Europe for Ontario corn, and I think that will continue probably into June because we have a smaller Brazilian crop coming at us. They're probably down between 20 to 25 million tons from last year. So again, the U.S. has to be the main supplier to the world here till June. However, Jerry Clausen says that he is expecting to see corn markets become volatile again this summer during the growing season if recent weather patterns hold true in 2024. We saw the volatility in the summer last year. If you have a sustained drier period, then it's going to make the market hold a, a bit of a risk premium. Once the crop is more certain, that risk premium erodes and then the market seems to grind lower. So. We're going to have some volatile markets this summer, there's no doubt about it. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. Now, here's Real Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, the American Sheep Industry Association is among the many agriculture groups hoping for a new farm bill to be passed sooner rather than later. Executive Director Peter Orwick says one of the programs they are looking for re-upping in the next farm bill is the Wool Loan Program. He says when COVID-19 hit, they lost a market for wool for probably half the growers in the nation. Wool loan program, which unfortunately for probably half the growers in the nation, really right now is the only revenue available for that coarser, maybe more colored wools. Um, that that market, they during the pandemic, they just stacked up wool all around the world. And just so the demand at any price for some categories is very tough. So it's hugely important for us to have the wool loan program, 40 cents a pound greasy uh, is available today. And and since the program was done 20 years ago, we're asking Congress, we need to update and modernize those rates. And so we could see hopefully 40, 50% increase. A lot of wool is being stored on the farm right now, according to Orwick, but there are other creative uses for wool. Which you can get by with. I mean, you just got to keep the weather out of it and the, and the rain and snow and and if you put it upright uh, when you uh, off the shearing floor, you can get by with that. Now, there are other areas. Uh, we did a meeting this morning, and we actually had four different state presidents that pelletizing uh, wool has become a very uh, popular topic. We know of, we've got a speaker uh, here at the convention that he started pelleting Wool for the major retailers, uh, they're using it obviously for potted soil for flowers and plants. Uh, So we know of another project started up in Oregon, and there's probably a few more that are underway. So that's just one of the ideas of of how you can use that product. We just can't tell from all our wool contacts, are we a year away, six months away, or is it longer than that before we start seeing some demand uh, for those certain categories of wool? About 420 people attended the recent ASI annual meeting in Colorado. In other livestock news, 
Is the contraction of the beef herd just about over, or will it continue? A USDA livestock analyst says this week's monthly USDA cattle on feed report probably will not provide the answers for that. Shale Shagam says cattle markets are going to have to wait a few more days for USDA's big cattle inventory report. Which will give us an estimate of the the actual number of of cattle in the U.S., the number of cattle in all feedlots, not just the 1,000-plus feedlots that these reports track, as well as the number of cows, both dairy and beef cows. So mark your calendars. USDA will be releasing its cattle inventory report January 31st. That may give us a better handle on where the beef industry is headed. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Join us next time for the Cattle on Feed Report. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have Voices of the Valley. But first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Brian German. The negative impact of the state's overtime rules for ag workers could be even more pronounced in the coming years. Chief Operating Officer for the Farm Employers Labor Service, Brian Little, referenced some of the findings in a recent study from Alexandra Hill from the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at UC Berkeley. When workers are asked how much they're working, workers are getting fewer hours and having less income as a result of the implementation of just the first two years of the ag overtime adjustments made by AB 1066. And those first two years impacted only large employers who you might expect would have the resources to be able to pay overtime if they think it makes economic sense to do so. The next tranche of data that Dr. Hill has indicated that she wants to analyze will be for the next few years of implementation that's starting to bite on smaller employers who have even less resources to be able to pay ag overtime than the bigger ones. So I think we're going to see even more dramatic effects coming up. Growmark and CHS, two farmer-owned cooperatives, have announced an exploratory process to identify opportunities for enhanced collaboration in the coming months. The cooperatives, with a long-standing relationship, have previously worked together on strategic projects to benefit their farmer owners and customers. Currently, they're engaged in joint efforts to advance agriculture, invest in technology, and introduce new solutions. In 2021, they established Cooperative Ventures, a venture capital fund dedicated to supporting breakthrough technologies in agriculture. The exploratory process between the two cooperatives aims to help meet global demand for owners' products and enhancing the overall value of the cooperative system. While the eventual outcome of the exploratory process is not yet known, both Growmark and CHS anticipate emerging with an even stronger relationship to ultimately improve customer outcomes. Enrollment is open for the Continuous Conservation Reserve Program. USDA Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau explained that the continuous CRP sign-up will be a little different this year. Because we are so close to the targets for conservation that the administration has set and that are in the Farm Bill, we're going to do this a little different this year in that we are going to batch these applications and consider them periodically over the course of the year so that we make sure that we do not get outside of our statutory limit with enrollments because the incentives that we've offered in the last few years, which carry over into continuous CRP, such as climate smart practice incentive and water quality practices, such as riparian buffers, filter strips, grass waterways, et cetera, those carry on have made these programs so popular. We don't want to get outside of our statutory authority on these. The California Department of Water Resources has made determinations for 17 groundwater sustainability plans. 
As part of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act passed in 2014, local groundwater sustainability agencies prepared plans addressing issues like overdraft to ensure water supply resilience. In the latest round of review for GSPs for high and medium priority basins, DWR has approved plans for 10 basins while deeming plans for 7 basins as incomplete. Incomplete plans will have 180 days for revision, and DWR will determine adequacy on resubmission. An inadequate determination will initiate consultation with the State Water Resources Control Board for possible state intervention. A detailed list of the latest determinations is available at agnetwest.com. The National Farmers Union Foundation's reminding students of three scholarship opportunities. The Stanley Moore Scholarships are for Farmers Union members that are high school seniors, college students, or non-traditional students seeking funding to attend a two- or four-year college or university or technical school for any area of study. Three $1,500 scholarships will be awarded through the program. The $2,000 Hubert K. and Joanne Seymour Scholarship is open to all graduating high school seniors who are Farmers Union members and continuing their education in a two-year or four-year college, university, or technical school. Two $1,500 awards will be provided to high school seniors, college students, or non-traditional students through the Minorities in Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Related Sciences Scholarship Program. The application deadline for all three scholarships is April 1st, and more information is available at nfu.org education scholarships. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Here's an excerpt from a recent episode of the Voices of the Valley podcast. That features a conversation looking ahead at agriculture's biggest challenges in 2024. This is Dennis Donahue. Welcome to an episode of Voices of the Valley. And today I am uh, joined by Gina Cadby, who is uh, the Director of Environment and Climate, also with Western Growers, the Science Group. Gina, welcome. Thank you, Dennis, for having me. Nice to see you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It kind of reminds me when uh, we first got started with the Innovation Center, Science and innovation were joined together, and today they're their own groups because there's so much activity. And uh, so I'm going to look forward to uh, uh, sharing a little bit about what we do at the Innovation Center, and I think folks are going to be really excited to hear about what you're up to on the science side. Absolutely. I agree. Thanks, Dennis. So let's jump right in with uh, who you are and your background and how you ended up with the position you have and, and why it's important. And also, I think why it speaks to what Western Growers does for its members, the services it provides and that type of thing, so. Sure, so my background is primarily in plant soil sciences, a lot of research work and agronomy work in particular, and right before joining Western Growers, I was part of a startup that is a biological product company that was happened to be a CIT startup company, so I was acutely aware of all of the wonderful tools and opportunities that the CIT offered for their member companies. Soon after I joined Western Growers as the Environment and Climate Director, I was also had the privilege to work with Dennis at the CIT on a couple of projects, including biologicals, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about more. I'm currently on the science team, and a lot of our focus is really has been on food safety in the past and now as an industry we're doing a lot more work in sustainability and acknowledging you know changes in our climate so 
I do think that this is a very timely position to be in, and I'm very grateful to be here. So very much looking forward to this discussion about that. Well, and I think your comments speak to, uh, you know, what we try and do as science and innovation on behalf of our members. And the fact you're here reflects, uh, you know, that expansion of primarily food safety to dealing with uh, sustainability and environment and climate. Obviously, it's an important conversation everywhere you look, whether it's society, politically, et cetera. But the reality is our growers, you know, I I like to tell people growing food uh, is the intersection of a lot of folks' uh, agendas. And the fact that you're here and we're responding to that, I think really speaks directly to what's our mission to serve our members. Absolutely. I agree. And I think, you know, in the past few years, the CIT has also done a lot to be up to date with what is being asked of from our membership. So any updates on what's going on with the CIT? Any new priorities? Well, there are. And and I'll just quickly... uh, you know, just by way of introduction, I do run the CIT, you know, for those of uh, trying to sort out all the acronyms in our life, Center for Innovation and Technology. So this is the Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, and, and we're housed in Salinas for any of our new listeners. And I think our mission is, the mission statement talks about enhancing the economic outlook for our members, and I think helping our members prepare for the future, which really was the genesis of the Innovation Center. That uh, And we have a pretty proactive board, and they really thought about that. They thought long and hard about, okay, you know, a lot of times when you're dealing with weather and outdoors, you, you have to react to things. And But to the degree you can kind of begin to take control and be proactive and lean into the future, I was really impressed that the board came up with uh, the thought that, you know, we've got to think about technology and innovation. And I like the fact innovation was included in, the, in that word because all innovation is not necessarily technology, but, but a lot of it is. And, and so the Innovation Center has really kind of served as the physical manifestation of that strategy. So I think both of our areas really reflect one of the opportunities uh, being involved with Western Growers Present. And once upon a time, I was a grower shipper. I was in the game. I was a Western Growers member, and I, and I really thought it was, you know, a number of terrific trade groups. But from a production ag standpoint, you know, what to me, Western Growers was always the essential organization. So I've really appreciated the opportunity to continue to work with, with our members. And it's interesting when people think about innovation in ag, because I think sometimes there's this perception that ag is slow to adopt. And the reality is ag's pretty good about innovation and in my view and with your background I'm going to guess you've seen the same thing I absolutely I would say we've been innovating for a very long time one of the innovations that I will say if I can brag about our team a little bit is with the GreenLink platform that we've been working on which is the first industry food safety data sharing platform for fresh produce and Users can analyze their individual company's food safety data and anonymously compare and benchmark food safety performance with aggregate industry data. And it was recently adopted by the California LGMA, which is the California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement. And, you know, this is a big step in the food safety space, and there is potential for more projects using the GreenLink platform. And essentially, California LGMA will be using this to help them implement their program. And we're very excited to host that. Well, and I think the whole conversation about data is really moving to 
a front burner position in terms of innovation and business processes and that type of thing. So that's a critical one. We very much live in a world of data now, and there are opportunities to collect data and analyze that data. And part of it is how do we access that data? And part of it is what do we do with this data, right? So there's kind of two sides to it. And GreenLink really allows for all of that data to be leveraged in a way where food safety outcomes are achievable and visualized. So it's important for consumers because you know, maybe it's something that you would pay attention to when there is a food safety outbreak, but when there isn't, you're not really thinking about food safety outbreaks, right? And that's what we want. We want to reduce food safety outbreaks to an extent where consumers don't even have to worry about it at all. When I think about innovation, I just, I just think of our own valley, the Salinas Valley. You know, over 100 years ago, the ability to top ice rail cars turned what was essentially a regional valley and industry to a national valley. And, you know, then 20 years later, here came the freezer, also out of this valley. And then some 20 years later, give or take, vacuum cooling, changing the cooling, and then you go down the road and uh, the packaged salad industry was trying to be born in the late 70s and the 80s and then exploded in the early, early 90s. So innovation is certainly nothing new to the valley, and that, that's probably the process I'm the most familiar with. Now, from an ag tech standpoint, as we've gotten involved in uh, technology and innovation, you know, I don't think we've quite caught up with Moore's Law where everything doubles every year, but uh, the game is starting to move really, really fast now. But it is interesting to kind of note that pace of change, 20 years, 20 years, 10 years, and now all of a sudden things are moving much more rapidly. We recently had our automation event in September, FIRA USA, And one of my favorite parts about that event was the in-field demos of all of the equipment. I thought that was so neat to be able to see it working in action. However, there was also a lot of discussion about AI and how we're integrating new technologies into these automation projects. And then also how we can get grower feedback in these new projects, because that's really the key point, right? Is it adding value to growers? And really, that's the takeaway. Thank you to the Voices of the Valley podcast for sharing that. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. I am in Salt Lake City this week at the American Farm Bureau Federation Annual Convention, and that's where we get today's featured interview. Let's start off with your name and your title, please. Jimmy Taylor, chair of CBB, which is Cattlemen's Beef Board. So tell me a little bit about the Cattlemen's Beef Board and what you are doing out here today at the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. So I uh, serve as chairman of Cattlemen's Beef Board. We've got 101 members on our board from across the United States of America. I believe they come from 42 different states and they're producers just like I am. Uh, I've got a cow-calf operation and our, our workforce is my wife, myself, and we've got one employee. But uh, we've got producers like that, uh, some smaller than me, some, some larger, all across the United States that volunteer their time to serve on our board and try to create demand for beef. Uh, what we're doing out here, we've got, uh, we're participating in the trade show. We've got a booth that uh, uh, has information about the checkoff. There's a lot of beef producers here as well as uh, um, corn farmers, 
soy farmers, but uh, there are a lot of beef producers that uh, are not too familiar with the checkoff, and we're giving them an opportunity to come in and let us explain what's going on, sign them up for, for our email, which will tell them where their checkoff dollars go. So, you know what, can we talk about that for a little bit? Where do those checkoff dollars go? They go to different programs. Uh, we have an operating committee that decides where those funds go. We have nine different contractors that, that work on projects for us. That committee selects which projects we're going to fund for a coming fiscal year. This fiscal year started October 1st. Uh, those nine contractors, uh, uh, one of them is uh, American Farm Bureau Foundation, and they... Uh, are working in classrooms across America to uh, mostly in urban areas to, to try to educate those people on what goes on on farms, where the food comes from, and do an excellent job. That's one of those projects that, that uh, the funds go to. Another one, uh, we take dollars from high population cattle states and send those dollars up to high population people states such as the Northeast. Uh, there's 72 million people in that area. Uh, in Nebraska, there's four cows for every person. In that northeast area, there's 14 people for every cow. So we take some of those dollars from states where most people know about ag and, and, and about beef, and we go to those states where there are high urban areas such as New York City, Philadelphia, in that area, and we educate consumers, uh, health professionals, nutritionists on the value of beef, uh, the nutritional value and uh, uh, just just tell them all about it, beef and, and uh, try to create demand for the product like that. You know, how important would you say that that is? How important is it to educate these consumers? And you also said health professionals um, so that they know about beef. There's a lot of information out there um, that is misinformation. So it, does this help combat that? Uh, that is another project. Yes, we do that. We've got an issues management team. This is one of my favorite projects. They monitor media 24-7. So if misinformation comes out about beef or there might be a, a, a health outbreak like the BSC incident back in 2000, uh, early 2000s. Uh, so if information comes out like that, we can immediately get something out that if it's misinformation, we'll get the truth out because the longer you let that misinformation go, the more it gets in people's minds that that's fact. So we try to get that out as quickly as can. If it's a disease outbreak, people are concerned about the safety of the product. And we can assure them uh, through this process that the beef supply is safe. It was, uh, in that case, it was one cow, an isolated incident, and we can point that out given the facts where they'll feel good about purchasing beef. Yeah, and, uh, you know, interesting enough, you were talking about that misinformation and how it sticks. That one cow, I believe, was 20 years ago, the Christmas time of 2003. And there are still some people out there who hold to that thought that they're going to get, you know, this disease from beef. When, and, you were, again, one cow back in 2003, and it wasn't even a threat to humans, right? Uh, right. Uh, they had it. They, they knew where it came from, had it isolated. Uh, uh, <laughs> And actually, that cow does does have an name. It's the cow that stole Christmas. <laughs> yeah, you probably knew that, but uh, uh, it and it actually did steal Christmas from cattlemen because uh, prices all of a sudden they they plummeted uh, because all of our all of our export markets virtually went away. 
Uh, and that's one of the successes. The booth next door is uh, United States Meat Export Federation. And they promote beef around the world. Uh, 15% of our production goes uh, internationally to exports. And, and I'll give you an example of one of the countries they worked with, a huge success story. When this uh, BSE incident happened, our beef sales in South Korea went to zero. The, it just wasn't accepted there anymore. They thought their health would be at risk if they ate beef. So we gradually started coming back in. In 2008, there were protests in the street about U.S. beef coming back in. And you go from 2008 to that going on to now they're our number one market for beef. We had in 2022, uh, the, the top market, we had $2.7 billion worth of sales in South Korea. And uh, consumer confidence number, I think, is around 70% now. So that's, that's another of our projects. Uh, USMEF is a contractor, and some of those checkoff dollars go there to do things like this around the world, uh, work with market development and market access. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson talking with Jimmy Taylor, chair of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. And we will be back right after this. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour from Salt Lake City, Utah this week at the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. I am talking with Jimmy Taylor, chairman of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. We continue the conversation. So these programs, let me rephrase this a little bit. Okay, do you remember that beef, it's what's for dinner? Was that a checkoff program or a CBB program? Uh, it's a checkoff program. Check program. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, uh, NCBA is the contractor on that one. And uh, that uh, is probably, if I'm in an airplane or just having a conversation with somebody in a city, that's the, uh, when they find out what I do, that's the one thing that they can relate to. Beep, it's what's for dinner. You had those great commercials with James Garner and uh, then later on with Sam Elliott and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Beep, it, beep, it's what's for dinner. And uh, most people can relate to that. So now, moving forward, TV has become so expensive. We, our dollars shrinking. And uh, back when this program first started, you know, we, every animal that's sold, we, a dollar a head goes into the checkoff program. A $19.85 today is worth 35 cents. So our buying power is a third of what it was back then. You add to that, TV is so expensive nowadays. So we, we've had to use other avenues uh, such as going digital. Uh, we can, we can uh, advertise like that. So you don't hear those beep, it's what's for dinner commercials on anymore. But there's a website if people want to go to, uh, and it's beef it's what's for dinner dot com. And you can go on there and find out uh, about anything you'd want to know about beef. Uh, nutritionally, how it stacks up, where the different cuts come from, recipes. Uh, it talks about sustainability in there. Uh, just, just about anything you'd want to know about beef. And that, that was then and has been a checkoff sponsored program. And how long ago was that? And that is still what people talk about for beef. And that has been a long time. So I think. The first time I can remember it, it was around 1991, yeah. too, and, and Robert Mitchum, I believe, was actually the first spokesperson. That lasted maybe a year or two. And then uh, James Garner and Sybil Shepard, uh, you might remember them. And then Sam Elliott, for, a, for a several years, was, was that voice that, that you heard on those commercials. And then probably the last one, Matthew McConaughey. 
I tell you what, you get Sam Elliott and follow him up with Matthew McConaughey, I am in. <laughs> I don't care what the campaign is, I am in. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question, and it's a controversial one, and it is okay for you to say I can't answer that. But there has been some legislation introduced recently, like the OFF Act or um, others, people trying to do away with checkoff programs. If that were to happen, um, what kind of a future do you see for our important commodities like beef? Uh, that would not be a good thing. And that off act, it not only dealt with uh, the beef checkoff, it was all checkoffs, all 23. I would ask the question, if those go away, where is uh, the promotion going to come from for all those different commodities? Where's the research coming from, all those different commodities? And the education, educating consumers and those health professionals we talked about. Where's all that going to come from? And y you say, well, we'd have another checkoff start again. This checkoff that we've got now, it took 10 years and three referendums to put that together. It's not an easy thing. And if anything, I'd say our industry is more divided today than it was back when that effort was, was, was trying to be put forward. You're, you've got so many different organizations that have their own idea on how that would look that it would be very difficult to get another one. So I don't know who's going to step in and, and fill that void on any one of those three things if those checkoffs go away. So it's it's very important. Now politically, uh, I can I can educate on it, but I I can't uh, lobby for anything. The checkoff cannot lobby, or uh, I can I can raise the the concerns. So, but, but I've got to stop there. I can't have anything to do with policy. Absolutely, and I completely understand. And that's why I tried to word it in such a way that we wouldn't touch on any, you know, policy. So thank you for that. Um, and I just want to end up with, you know, is there anything else that you think that our listeners should know? And I have a wide listening audience. We have farmers, and we also have non-farmers, especially out in California, in some very urban areas who are listeners to my program. Anything that you'd like them to know about beef or about the uh, CBB? So uh, about beef, I, I would... Uh I guess if I had one thought to, to finish with, uh, all the commodities, uh, you know, we've all, we're, we're competitors in, in some way, but we've got ways that we can work together. We, we've got opponents out there that want to do away with uh, animal agriculture, for instance. You know, I think that's a, a bigger concern than, than, than competitions we might have. I think there's, there's a lot of room for finding ways we can work together and set aside where, where we, those areas where we disagree, but find ways to work together for, for those things that would be beneficial to all of us. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for being out here at AFBF. You bet. Thanks for having me on. We're back in Salt Lake City, Utah tomorrow. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.